In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than 1 billion trees are planted every year, and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. Okay, I guess we'll get started. Ladyweeds. Hooray. Hooray. Hello and welcome to the Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I am not Matt Iglesias, although I have stolen his chair in the podcast studio. I am Sarah Cliff. I'm here with Dara Lind and Jane Coaston for I think the first time the three of us have hosted together. Yes, ever. which is, uh, well, I was going to say like, as of this time yesterday, it looked like we were going to have the worst time. Like, this, you know, <laughs> yes. not none of us are resident experts on the Mueller report. Luckily, luckily, there is some late breaking Obamacare news. Right. We right. Found the, some... the Trump Department of Justice was like, gee, let's <laughs> celebrate having Sarah Cliff on the weeds. We, we've got some Department of Justice Obamacare stuff going on. We um, have got a great white paper about one of my favorite topics, IUDs. And but first, we are going to start with the kind of massive news of the week and the weekend the Mueller report and kind of where things go next. I- I'm guessing, you know, there's a great episode of Today Explained where you can listen to Andrew Prokop interviewed about this, about what was actually in it. But here on The Weeds, we kind of wanted to focus on the more weedsy side of like where this leaves Congress in their oversight role and kind of what happens coming out of this. You know, it's a somewhat unexpected version of the Mueller report where you have this Weird window. Well, left. We don't, you know, technically we don't have sure, a, a right, summary right. of the and Mueller report. This is actually like it appears to be the first phase of the congressional responses to demand the entire thing. This was something that you could see Democrats teeing up even before the report was submitted to Attorney General Barr. That like there was kind of a growing sense that you may not necessarily trust the attorney general who Donald Trump appointed to all apparent appearance or to all appearances in order for him to take over the oversight of the Mueller investigation um, but that obviously grew over the weekend and what by the time attorney general Barr's actual letter came out given how infrequently he quoted Mueller and given that his response to the obstruction side of the investigation was Mueller didn't come to a conclusion either way we've come to a conclusion that there was no obstruction <laughs> um which basically kind of well is the you you've now gotten the meat of the Barr letter you do not need to read it anymore nope. um but it's both an act of oversight but it's also still kind of like being held it's it's not like fighting the last war per se, but it is, you know, we're not really in the response to the Mueller report phase yet, right? We're still kind of fighting over the existence of the Mueller report. Yeah. And I think also there is both the legal Mueller report and then there's the political 
Mueller report. And those are two separate things. We've been having this conversation over and over again about how a lot of what is in the Mueller report is more is that we have not seen. And I think it's important to keep reiterating that we have not seen it. And per Mitch McConnell, we might not see it at all. But I think it's important to remember that this is going to be an oversight question. This has no it's no longer so much a legal question. I think what McConnell blocked on Monday was a resolution that would have required the release of the full Mueller report. It's worth noting that Barr does intend to release at least something else. Mm -hmm. uh, his line on this is, well, first we need to see what doesn't interfere with ongoing or potential grand jury investigations, and then we need to uh, scrub it in accordance with law and department policies. And the reason that that's kind of raising alarms for Democrats and why they don't they're not necessarily willing to wait and see what gets released publicly is that department policies in general and obviously they've not necessarily done this always and in, in fact in 2016 they very famously violated this with regard to Hillary Clinton uh, in theory you're not supposed to talk in detail in documents about unindicted behavior so if the conclusion is that Donald Trump didn't commit obstruction of justice. That gives them license to delete any parts of the Mueller report that talk about things that Donald Trump did that could be considered obstruction of justice before they release it to the public. But yes, the idea that's metastasized in the forty in the time after the Barr letter that like the Mueller report is somehow more damning to Trump and that if only Congress could get its hands on it, then we could be going somewhere has really, I think, taken root. Yeah. And I, it's also uh, I want to draw attention that it's not just in resistance Twitter having a full sleeve tattoo of Robert Mueller that is thinking about this, which is a thing that people did, which I, I think that's, Wait, that's, a, that's, a, yeah, no. that's a separate podcast for a separate time. Oh, boy. A separate perhaps bringing on like a host of other people to discuss just that. But I think that is worth noting that uh, there's a great piece in National Review today by Yuval Levin that's talking about how everyone is responding right now to the bar letter, which is a summary, and no one else has seen the actual report. And I, I, I know we've said that multiple times, but I do think it's worth recognizing that to the extent of you know, what we actually know, the people who are dunking on journalists and the same journalists who are saying, you know, who are being dunked on, like no one has seen what Mueller actually concluded. And so I think it, it is important to note that like, there are a lot of people on kind of both sides of the political aisle who are interested in seeing not just the actual report itself, but the FISA applications that were used for wiretapping, which, you know, if you remember Carter Page. There have just been a host of people in this investigation who in two years will become really great bar trivia quiz answers, it, which I, I, I'm looking forward yes. to. But, Key you know, characters in like the slow burn 2030 yes. season. So, so we exactly. literally had a Slack conversation on Vox Slack yesterday that was basically all of us just naming like people we hadn't thought about in months that we wanted to get the kind of post-credits montage shot. Yes. Like, So I think this does raise a, the, the way that it has been summarized at this point, understanding this is not the Mueller report. This is Barr's summary of the Mueller report, where he you know, says there's no evidence of collusion with Russia and that there was not enough evidence to show any sort of obstruction of justice, but also that he is not exonerating him. That position, I think, is one very confusing. I think there's a lot we don't know about why that is where it landed. And I think it's also kind of a tough position for Democrats right now, but like where they want to 
take this. You know, on the one hand, Mueller is going to have a lot more powers than congressional Democrats have a lot of powers. They have subpoena powers. There's a lot they can do. But, you know, you look at Mueller, who did this 22-month investigation, can't really decide if there's obstruction of justice or there's something else going on because we have not read the report. I think it leaves congressional Democrats in like a very challenging political position of deciding, like, well, where do we want to take this? I think it's kind of telling that it took Nancy Pelosi, you know, a good long while to say anything because there's not really a clear next step. You know, you could you could keep digging into this. And I think they're definitely going to request that the report be released. But it's I think it's an interesting question of priorities leading into an election. Like, I don't know if I was Nancy Pelosi, like where I would want to take this, what I want to focus on. I don't know. One of the things we'll talk about later in the show, the Trump administration, like trying to dismantle Obamacare, what I want to keep digging in on, like undocumented minors and like how they've been treated at the border and like things going on with HUD and like all sorts of things you could keep investigating. Or do I want to keep going down this path? I think it's a super challenging position. And I don't even know. Look, I think in hindsight, you'll be able to say, well, this was the right choice. I don't know. Looking forward, there's like a right choice of what to do. Yeah. Yeah. It's really, really tricky. And I think it relies a lot on what you think congressional oversight is for, right? Mm -hmm. Like, the thing that makes the Mueller obstruction question in particular difficult and why it's not just a punt for Democrats to be calling for the release of the whole thing is that there's a theory going around that the reason that Mueller didn't commit one way or the other on obstruction was specifically because he thought it was a question that would be best left up to Congress in terms of impeachment proceedings. Like, we know that there is kind of a fraud, that it's fraught legal grounds, not only to talk about indicting a sitting president, um, you know, prosecuting a sitting president in general, but specifically when it comes to obstruction of justice, William Barr has and gave to the White House unsolicited in 2018 a very, let's say, robust theory of presidential power that basically says you can't con- you can't charge a president of obstruction of justice if he's just directing a federal investigation. That's part of his job. So given that that's not exactly legal consensus, it is totally possible that either because he knew he was going to disagree with Barr or because he just thought, you know, maybe this isn't something for the Department of Justice to determine. It's something that is best considered by a separate branch that Mueller thought the purpose of his report was to lay out the evidence for Congress on obstruction and let Congress decide. We don't know that that's the case. Like the, you know, the House Intelligence Committee led by Adam Schiff and, you know, various other committees are planning to have Barr and Mueller in to talk, which is definitely a thing Congress can do very easily. And, you know, maybe they'll figure this out. But like, I think that that that's kind of the threshold question that has to be answered, because that's a definite thing Congress can do. If it turns out that that wasn't the reason, or if we can't find out one way or the other, like, then we get into this total morass. And it's somewhat easier on the committee level, because Adam Schiff is not going to be in the alternative doing intelligence hearings on Obamacare. There's a certain, you know, committee staff are, you know, they're not a totally renewable, like, infinite resource, but there's a general wheelhouse of things that they're going to be kind of dedicated on one or the other. The exception here is House Judiciary, which is doing freaking— Judiciary and Oversight are both doing a lot, a lot of things. And so those are real questions as to where they want to go. But, like, you can expect Adam Schiff to keep doing what Adam Schiff is doing. It's definitely a bigger question in terms of, like, top line, what is Nancy Pelosi spending her time on? 
And the more that some Democrats keep talking about the Mueller report, we've seen the more other Democrats get asked by the media all the damn time, Mueller report and impeachment, Mueller report and impeachment. And like there's been a little not so stifled relief among a lot of Democrats in the you know time since the bar letter was released that like people who weren't necessarily super interested in talking about Russia all the time now feel that they have the opportunity to talk about the issues, which if you think of congressional oversight as mostly a way to set the talking points in the agenda for the next election, that's a very, very careful consideration. And I think that that raises an important point, just mo- backing up a little bit, is that contrary to what people who watch a great deal of cable news might think congressional Democrats were not discussing the Russia investigation as often as I think a lot of people might think. It was not a major issue on the ground in 2018. You did not see congressional Democrats making ads that were focused on the Russia investigation because as numerous people have pointed out with respect to 2020 Democrats, when Amy Klobuchar or Elizabeth Warren have been having town hall meetings. No one is asking about the Mueller investigation. Obviously, there are people who have been deeply, deeply interested in the Mueller investigation. If you did a Twitter town hall, this would look very <laughs> It's different. a very different thing. But I think someone raised the point that for people who watch cable news, they tend to be of like a higher age bracket that remembers Watergate. So if you could either tie it to Watergate or the Whitewater investigation that w- turned into the Lewinsky investigation, people know those storylines. We're like, I understand this. This remembers, this reminds me of something that happened in 1997, 1988, or 1973, 1974. There's an understanding of like, ah, yes, I understand the threads of this investigation. Now there's going to be a lot of offspins, uh, offshoots of this investigation. There are going to be a lot of different people to talk about it. But it made sense in a cable news perspective. But I agree that for congressional Democrats, especially with the ACA news, which was the focus of a lot of 2018 Democrats messaging on the ground, you know, that's what Abigail Spanberger was talking about. That's what a lot of folks were talking about in races they won in red or reddish or blueing states. I'm going to turn blueing into a term that means generally not what it we mean we talk about purple. Yes, but I like blueing. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of want to like getting back to the kind of opportunity cost question here of what other things Democrats could be doing. Neither of us has the congressional, like, reporting experience that you have, Sarah. And specifically, I'm thinking about, like, the 2010 to 2016 period when Republicans were running, you know, one or both members of chambers of Congress under the Obama administration. Like, it seems to me that in the kind of couple of months that we've seen House Democrats in charge under Trump, there's been a lot of swarming to a few really marquee issues. There's been a lot of swarming to, like, Mueller and assorted corruption stuff um, you know, like calling in Michael Cohn to testify, there's been a lot of swarming to family separation. There's been like a lot of swarming to Obamacare. And to a certain extent, like two out of three of those have been, you know, but the the kind of Trump corruption stuff and the family separation stuff have been mostly past tense investigations, which raises questions of what is it that Congress is trying to do with that, right? I'm wondering, in in your experience, is that something that tends to be useful for House, for, you know, members of the opposition party who are who have control of one chamber of Congress? Or is it just kind of a matter of just swarming to where the media coverage already is instead of trying to uncover newer or ongoing things or shape the direction of policy going forward? Yeah, I think it's interesting to think of, like, what could 
you know, be accomplished in the like two year session of Congress that we are in right now. And when you look back to like 2009, 2010, which was a super productive time, the reason it was so productive was that Democrats had a super majority in the Senate and that there were such big opportunities that it was not going to last very long. You know, they lost it in the middle of the ACA fight um, and just barely got the law passed. But there, you know, there was big costs to doing things that weren't making policy because you had this rare little moment where you had all the stars aligned, you had your party in control of everything. Now, you know, the costs of like not rolling out new policies just aren't as high, you know, because you're just not going to see much pass. You see some like tinkering around the edges, like it looks like, I don't know, some surprise billing legislation will likely pass in the healthcare space. And like she says extremely <laughs> modestly <laughs> that I may have had something to do with. But, you know, those are like some small bipartisan things that like might move forward. And then so you think about, OK, we're in this like election context. Like what can if you are in control of one body of the of Congress or in control of the House, like what can you do and really, like, one of the things you're left with is this oversight role of, like, looking backwards and trying to expose things versus going forwards and creating new policies. Because And you do see—I will say, you know, Democrats are doing some policymaking. You know, they're looking at doing Medicare for all hearings this year. So they are exploring some policy. But kind of the power you have in the opposition and in the minority is not one of making policy. And I think that leads to, like, a greater focus on something like— the Mueller investigation and and into investigating Trump and hearings like the Cohen hearing. Like, I think you will definitely see more things like like that with, you know, folks like Barr and Mueller being called up to testify because they are, I mean, such made for TV moments, right? right? Like it is so, so different to have these four page letters versus like hours of testimony, you know, in front of a camera. It is just so much more impactful. And so you think from, like, the Democrats' view, like, you know, sometimes a big impact you can have is by passing a massive policy. Sometimes it's by having really high-profile oversight hearings. And that's one of the few powers they have, you know, controlling just one chamber of government right now. You know, in seeing this, the hearings that Democrats have had on the really high-profile stuff so far, it seems like there are kind of a few competing, you know, at the individual member level, there are a lot of members in, in both parties who, like— want to be on camera being extremely passionate, right? Like, there are a lot of members of Congress who do not use their five-minute allotted question time to maximize the number of questions they are asking, much less to, like, surface new information. But that goes to what you're saying, Sarah. It's like one of the purposes of those hearings is to kind of have people state on the record what they believe and what they believe happened that was wrong. It gets a little bit trickier, I think, when you're talking about, okay, what do you want to have happen as a result of this other than getting you on camera? I think traditionally there's been an assumption that if you can get somebody, if you can pin blame on somebody, you can embarrass them enough that they can resign, right? Like, I definitely know that there's been interest in getting people to resign over family separation, that kind of thing. We haven't exactly seen anybody resign over policy implementation under the Trump administration. People have resigned over corruption concerns. But, like, it does not appear obvious to me that that isn't just another Washington norm that's dissolved. You do have, on occasion, the, the administration walking things back when they get super embarrassed, like family separation. So that's kind of when I'm thinking about, you know, 
oversight, there's oversight that's done of things that are going on now. And then there's oversight of things where, like, the purpose is to say this thing that you guys have walked back already, that you have acknowledged tacitly shouldn't have happened, you're the person who is going to be held accountable for this. Yeah, so I think it kind of, like, comes back to the first question is, like, where how, where do Democrats, like, put this yeah. in the priority <laughs> yeah. Yeah. list? Like, what do they want to have their hearings on? What is someone, like, you mentioned, like, Adam Schiff, like, he's probably going to be working on this no matter what. But, like, what is Nancy Pelosi going to be spending her time talking about? And I think with this report coming out, you know, I think there will still be calls for the report to come out, but with the no collusion you know, finding, it takes a little bit out of the the wind out of the sails of House Democrats, um, where, you know, it seemed like for the 22 months this was going on, this was like an open question that they could say, you know, there's this investigation going on, you know, we need to be part of that, we need to be looking into it. With the finding, I think it makes it a little harder to, you know, sell their version of the investigation. I think, you know, you could keep working on the, like, obstruction of justice side of things, but it makes it a little bit harder for them to justify. And I, you know, there's a really interesting piece um, Zach Beecham wrote for Vox that I'd recommend everyone reading, kind of looking at the partisan lens through which this was received, where what you thought of the Mueller report really depended a lot on your politics. And, And that really, it makes it really hard for this institution of a special investigator to even exist and serve the role that it was supposed to serve. The idea was having this nonpartisan office that is going to be able to, you know, work without fear of reprisal and has no allegiances to anything but the truth. And if you look at the reception of this report, it is just the opposite of that. You know, what you believe about the report seems to largely have to do with what you thought already about, about politics Donald and Donald yeah. Trump. And, you know, I kind of wonder if there's almost a bit of a backfire effect that Democrats are at risk of here of, you know, mobilizing Republicans saying, like, what are they doing investigating this? The Mueller investigation is done. You know, let's move on. He found no collusion. It said everything, you know, even this report that comes out of an institution that was set up to be so set aside from politics, like, even that isn't really set aside at this point with the amount of polarization and kind of deep entrenchment we have of, you know, two political sides at this point. Yeah, I mean, I think it's not it's it's worth noting that while Democrats have already flagged a couple of people involved with this that they want to call in for hearings, you know, Senator Lindsey Graham of the Senate Judiciary Committee is like saying, yeah, we want to call Mueller in and ask him why he's not doing more to investigate Hillary Clinton's Yeah, like, like, That is definitely an opportunity that they see. Republicans are like, now it's time to investigate Uranium One. It, it, it's interesting how the, the like the you know Mitt Romney and a couple of other folks in Congress have been kind of using the like let's all move on line, which you know I pointed out yesterday is slightly different from say you know like how Kevin McCarthy responded to the end of the Benghazi hearings, which you might remember the ar- argument that no 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 we shouldn't move on now it's time to go back further and just start investigating Hillary Clinton in detail again because that. That's what the American people are calling for when the American people in general are kind of like, no, no, I think moving on to something else might be of interest. But also, you know, I would like more information on these specific things or we could just investigate Uranium One again. In the interest of serving the American people, we should move on to something else. That being like the apparent late night Monday threat (laughs) to the Affordable Care Act. Yes, let's let's take a break and we'll come back to that. 
Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media, pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context, and it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than one billion trees are planted every year, and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com. So in separate news in the Department of Justice, which is having an incredibly busy week this week, very late last night, um, you know, actually, I was, uh, I will admit, already asleep when this happened. The Department of Justice filed this brief in the latest lawsuit against Obamacare. Um, This is Texas versus Azar. It's a lawsuit trying to overturn the entirety of Obamacare that is going before the Fifth Court of Appeals soon. And the Department of Justice did something kind of surprising. They filed a brief where they said they think the courts should overturn all of Obamacare. And this is surprising because it's actually a different and more sweeping position. You know, actually, I'll say it's surprising for two reasons. One, it is a a much more sweeping legal position than the Trump administration previously held. The Trump administration has been involved in this lawsuit for a number of months at this point. They have declined to defend the Affordable Care Act. So some Democratic attorneys general have stepped in to defend the federal law. And they argued for a while their their stance was that, you know, only part of this lawsuit should be successful. There are certain things we think should fall if these and just to back up a little bit, actually, that's probably helpful, is that this is a lawsuit brought by a number of conservative attorneys general who argue that Obamacare's individual mandate is now illegal due to some changes that were passed in the tax bill. And because the individual mandate is unconstitutional, the rest of Obamacare needs to be invalidated. The Trump administration didn't initially endorse that view. They said, we think the individual mandate is unconstitutional and we think just a few other things would fall with it. Now they're going further. Now they're saying, you know, the Medicaid expansion, which covers 15 million people, um, that should be invalidated. I think this is surprising on two levels. One, it's a much more sweeping position for the Trump administration to hold. Two, it strikes me as quite the 2020 strategy to come out of like the Russia, like to come out of the Mueller report, the no collusion finding. And the first thing the Department of Justice does is says, we want to file this brief that 15 million people should lose health insurance. Like the commitment to Obamacare repeal, it is so, so 
real and like overpowering. And, and it seems like a bad, I don't know, like I'm no, I'm no Republican pollster, but it strikes me as a bad It's a bad strategy. issue for them, which is why they haven't been discussing it. Like there's even a, a, a great piece a couple of weeks ago in the Washington Examiner that I, I think I brought up earlier in another podcast that compared Obamacare repeal to Brexit of something that people kept saying they wanted to do, but they had no actual plan for. And now no one wants to talk about like there is a reason why Trump coming in with, quote unquote, health care for everyone, which went undefined largely. Ted Cruz was the one who was like, let's repeal Obamacare. He shut down the government over this particular issue. He did not win the presidency, as you'll notice. This is a bad issue for Republicans. Right. There was a bad issue. In you'll 20- recall the 2018 midterms. <laughs> yeah, again, those were thousands of years ago. But this is not a terrific issue, especially because if you're attempting to make the case in 2020 that single payer means you lose your doctor, and then you're ch- attempting to repeal the Affordable Care Act, which would also mean, guess what? You'd lose your doctor. I just, I mean, I understand the conservative argument against the Affordable Care Act. I get that. I do. I've had these conversations before many times on this particular issue. But how that translates into politics and how that translates into how Republicans are able to talk to not just the base, but independent conservative-leaning voters about this particular issue are two very different things. And I just, I don't get it. This is interesting to me because at a very top-line analysis, the federal government is under unified Republican control, not just like, you know, not only is it true that Republicans have one of two houses of Congress, but like the number of federal judges who have been appointed to the bench by the Trump administration in its first two and change years has just been tremendous. The argument that the federal judiciary is substantially more conservative and has substantially more in particular Republican appointees than it did under previous presidents is pretty strong. And furthermore, encouraged in part by that wave and in part by the president's own rhetoric, you're beginning to see a little bit more explicit partisanship coming out of some parts of the federal bench. There was a federal judge in, I think, North Carolina this week who openly said that the only reason that the appeals panel had ruled in favor of one side in the case was because it was a quote-unquote majority-minority panel, by which they meant two Democrats and one Republican, which is generally not the way one talks about judges once they're appointed. Uh, it's, you know, it's something that you see at the state level, but federally, as John Roberts said last fall, there are no Obama judges or Trump judges, or they're not supposed to be. Despite being Republican-appointed, those judges are coming from a particular strain of ideological conservatism, of like Federalist Society legal conservatism, in which the individual mandate's unconstitutionality is such a central tenet. Restraining Congress from just being able to legislate every avenue of life is so important that it makes sense that federal judges aren't necessarily taking the, you know, what's going to be good for Republicans in 2020 line into consideration. Like, it is actually... I wouldn't say reassuring, but it's definitely an indicator that they're operating on ideological grounds rather than political ones. What's surprising is that the Trump Department of Justice is doing that, right? Like, yeah, the executive branch is a little more insulated from politics than the legislative branches, but like Trump's going into re-election. They, in theory, have an interest in keeping, you know, in in retaining or consolidating Republican control of Congress. Like, 
it does appear to be a genuine ideological thing. It, I mean, maybe they have secret polling numbers showing that this is actually going to be really good for them all of a sudden. But the other possibility is that they just think they can lie their way out of it. Yeah, it just and so we don't have a ton of information on the argument they're going to make. So the reason this happened yesterday is because there were some filing deadlines in the court. So it's not like the Trump administration came out of the Mueller report and was like, aha, this is our next thing on the to-do list. There were some reasons this happened. And they haven't filed their arguments yet on, you know, why they've now believe this. They basically what they basically said is that a few months ago, a judge in Texas agreed with the challengers. It agreed that the individual mandate is now unconstitutional because there's no fine associated with it, making it no longer a tax. And the judge agreed that the mandate is so key to the Affordable Care Act that everything else has to fall. And their memo, which is literally one page, you could read it and, you know, much, much shorter time than listen than it would take you to listen to this podcast segment, basically says, we at the Justice Department now agree with the judge. We'll file more details later. It's like maybe four lines typed. So we don't really know right now like what arguments they're going to make. We don't know if they're going to get into like why they now believe differently about how the mandate works and its role in the Affordable Care Act. But I think now that the Trump administration is endorsing this position, it's worth just talking about like how sweeping of a change this would be and like what a clusterfuck it would be if this position really were endorsed by the Supreme Court. So we're talking about ending the Medicaid expansion, which, you know, covers about 15 million low-income Americans. We're talking about bringing back pre-existing conditions to the individual market. Um, you know, we're talking about all these, you know, and things that seem so unrelated to the individual mandate. Like, for example, Obamacare required contraceptives to be, you know, no cost to patients. We'll talk a little bit more about that later. That would be rolled back. It required lactation rooms in bigger companies. That would be rolled back. It required calorie counts on um, on menus at chain restaurants. Like, those would no longer be required. Obamacare is now, a, it literally turned nine years old on Saturday. It is just so baked into so many things that the actual work of rolling it back would be such a big, it would be such a huge, difficult undertaking. There's been all these payments to how Medicare pays for health care. Like, we those now have would be an entire back. generation of kids who assume that they could stay on their parents' health insurance until it's they true. turn 26. Yeah, yeah. One right. of the most popular parts of Obamacare, you know, staying on your parents' insurance till you're 26. That would be rolled back under the Republican, under the argument the Justice Department is now making. And I can't tell if, you know, most legal scholars don't think this lawsuit will be successful. I can't tell if the Justice Department is just kind of like leaning on the hope that like they want to keep up the Obamacare repeal fight and show that they're still fighting it, but kind of like leaning on this hope that like it'll get shut down in the courts and they won't have to deal with this like great unwinding and the great unpopularity of kicking 20 million people off insurance. So so that's one uh, one option is that they feel like they can make these arguments, but they won't have to deal with the consequences Right. And you think of the timeline of this, like this could all be happening in 2020. And maybe that is their hope and desire. But it just seems like I don't I don't know what kind of mess they feel like they're like walking into or not walking into. But it just seems I mean, it is quite the feat to like come out of this, like to like stomp on your like no collusion headlines with this legal brief of like, let's end all of Obamacare. Can I ask a stupid legal question, yeah, Sarah? Like, always. I understand that I understand the argument of, yes, okay, the Supreme Court has already reviewed the constitutionality Mm -hmm. of the individual mandate. However, that analysis has been 
changed by the fact that there is now different legislation yes. on the books that makes it harder to argue that the individual mandate is a tax. Like that I get. The rest of it oh, doesn't yeah. necessarily – the rest of the of the Affordable Care Act hasn't changed. So the Supreme Court – hasn't the Supreme Court already reviewed the like severability stuff? Like isn't – what is what is the actual argument that the yeah. – that even though parts of the ACA got struck down – you know, and like in the last go round, like, Medi- you know, the Medicaid sure. expansion got limited that somehow now there's no severability. Yeah. No, no, no. I, this is not a dumb question. This is the question most legal scholars have and like will poke at the greatest holes in it. So you're you're actually like kidding on the exact right thing. Awesome. Um, so the argument being made here is that, you know, at the end of 2017, Congress passed the, its big tax bill. One of the things it did was it didn't repeal the individual mandate, but it changed the individual mandate. So instead of carrying a $700 fine for not having health insurance, there's a $0 fine. Essentially, like, in practice, the same thing as repeal. Some, you know, kind of some conservative attorneys general saw that and said, aha, like, this pokes a hole in Obamacare. Because if you will recall, you know, the first Supreme Court ruling, John Roberts wrote an opinion where he said the mandate is constitutional because it is a tax. And now that there's no fee associated with the individual mandate is no longer a tax. And, you know, some other legal scholars might say, like, yeah, maybe that's that's right. But it feels like a little moot, right? Like, okay, throw out the individual mandate in court. Like, there's no fine anymore. So what the challengers do, the conservative attorneys general, is they say the individual mandate is so key to Obamacare that it is not severable. And if Congress meant to knock out the individual mandate— Congress, you know, clearly the Congress knows how key the individual mandate is to the rest of Obamacare. Congress really meant to take down the rest of Obamacare. Yeah. No, that's Dara's making this face at me like, what? And, and yeah, yes, that's no, fair. I, I have so many um, questions. The courts never got to the severability question in 2012 because they ruled the mandate constitutional. So it was kind of like a okay. moot question at that point. Um, so they never really had to deal with it. And what you saw, actually, so one of the things that um, the challengers, the conservative attorney generals, are actually leaning quite heavily on are some writings of the Obama Justice Department in 2010 and 2011. This was before the expansion had rolled out. The Obama administration was arguing the mandate is so key to Obamacare. You courts, if you knock down the mandate, you've got to take, you know, pre-existing conditions and the requirement to sell everybody with it because we can't implement it without the mandate. Nothing's been set up yet. And we so they are hearkening back to mm. those things written by the Obama administration and, you know, making this argument. kind of sound like legal briefs written for policy arguments like, yes. oh, it will be hard, not, oh, it would be illegal. Yeah. So that's what's going on there. And, you know, the face Dara made at me in this podcast studio is the face that many legal scholars make when they read this argument that's being made. It is really still, even with, you know, the Justice Department throwing its weight behind it, it's still like a long shot challenge. But I don't know. Long shot challenges have made it to the Supreme Court before. And I think the legal argument's weak, but like I'm not a Supreme Court justice and I don't know what they think about the legal arguments. And the Supreme Court has a noted talent for taking weak legal arguments and delivering stronger versions of them if they think that they're right on the merits. Yes. So we have the Justice Department weighing in on this. I I don't we'll have a appeals court hearing in the next few months and then we will we'll talk about whatever they rule uh, on the weeds. It's time for a white paper. I think it's time for a white paper. Let's take a break and then we got a white paper. Got a white paper on IUDs. 
Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. Okay, so this, I feel like this paper, the, the title of this paper really was was written with me in mind. I'd like to think it probably wasn't. The title is The Power of the IUD, Effects of Expanding Access to Contraception Through Title X Clinics by Andrea Kelly, Jason Lindo, and Annalisa Packham. And they look at this really great experiment that was running in Colorado, where what they did was they made um, really effective versions of birth control, things like IUDs and implants available for free to low-income women. This was before the Obamacare expansion. So before it became affordable to um, a lot of women, they were experimenting with this in Colorado. And they just find some really massive effects. So, you know, what they specifically find, which is that among women in zip codes within seven miles of these clinics where they could get the birth control, it reduced births by approximately 20% for 15 to 17-year-olds and 18 to 19-year-olds. Um, they also find that, you know, when there was more media coverage of this, you saw greater effects in terms of the reduction in births. You saw women opting for using, you know, these more effective types of birth controls. They're called um, long-acting reversible contraceptives or LARCs in um, the birth control lingo. You saw them choosing those over birth control pills, which are generally less effective because you have to remember to take them every single day. Um, One of the things that was pretty interesting to me is that the effects were largely concentrated among people who were closer to the clinics, that if you lived within seven miles of a clinic— you saw these big effects and reductions of birth for those women. But if you were more than 12 miles from a clinic and, you know, we're talking five miles is a decent distance. I don't know. But we're not talking about like five miles versus 50 miles. We're talking about a difference of five miles. You see some of the effects disappear. And I thought that was pretty interesting and kind of interesting for policymakers and thinking through, like, how do you make birth control more accessible? Because it seems like when it is easy to get to this paper says to me that women will use it, but you really have to take down like all the barriers, like the distance and the cost and like, you know, the the knowing about it. There's so many barriers that are standing between women and high quality birth control. And if you leave any of them up, it, it seems like there will still be an effective barrier to getting to them. Yeah, the distance thing was wild for me uh, because it's not like this isn't kind of one of the one of those like bad p-value studies where they just decided that set to like use seven miles as the cutoff because that's where they would show things like they literally tested everything from five six seven eight like all the way through and they found that there was a strong difference between closer and further when the cutoff was five miles there was a bigger difference when the cutoff was six miles and there was a big difference when the cutoff was seven miles and then it decreased and like when when they made that dis- that division, they were talking about really short drives on the closer side, like the average distance to the clinic for people who were living within seven miles of a clinic was like a less than nine minute drive. The average distance for people who were living seven or more miles from a clinic was like a 50 minute drive. Like, I think some of this is probably Colorado, which has like a few cities and then, you know, some people who are living in pretty rural areas. But there's pro- definitely a pretty big difference there, but also like 
for all we think about kind of, oh, the internet is getting rid of distance and, Mm -hmm. you know, you don't need to physically see something in your neighborhood to be reminded to do it anymore. Like there, you you can use apps for that or that kind of thing. It really does seem like, and they have, they're building on other research here showing that being physically located close to something is very important. And I do wonder if this is probably especially true for teenagers Mm -hmm. who are more likely to not have time to just like take off work and who are more likely to be at the whim of where other people can drive them or whether they can use public transportation rather than having their own cars. I think also one of the things I'm curious about just from the reading I've done of this space of research is the network effects that happen. So I think one of the things I've noticed with um, contraceptives is that for something like an IUD, which actually like requires a procedure to get done, it's a procedure that like as someone who has gone through it is a little bit painful, but you know, it gives you a great birth control for for five to 10 years. And I think sometimes, you know, I, I've seen this just in my own experience, like you need someone else to tell you, oh no, it was totally worth it. Yeah, it hurt like a little bit, but like here's what the procedure was like. And I think, you know, one of the things that might be happening in these areas, you know, part of it's about distance and actually getting to clinic, but part of it's about like knowing people who have gotten that type of birth control and can tell you, you know, here's what the procedure's like. One of the things you actually see is among teens, they're gravitating more towards implants, the little um, device that goes in your arm more than IUDs. IUDs tend to be like more women in their 20s and 30s and teens tend to gravitate towards implants. But I have a hunch, and like this is not in the paper, but just you know from what I've seen in my own experience, what I've read in the research, that part of what's going on in the areas near the clinics is you have like more teens telling other teens like, oh, I got an implant here. Like you can poke at it. Like this is what it feels like. This is what the procedure was like. It didn't actually hurt that much. And that might be another thing, you know, if you have less people further out who can like have those conversations that might stifle, you know, the spreading of a certain type of contraceptive in a community. Especially because I think in a lot of these issues, both and the implant, I think, is especially something that young women would be able to talk to their, about without having to necessarily talk to their partners about, which I mm-hmm. think is something, mm-hmm. a, a important area for this, because forms of contraception that young women can take on for themselves, mm-hmm. I think, are really effective with teens um, for reasons I think we can all figure out. Right. Which is why, like, there's a little bit of, there's a moment in here where they kind of are disappointed that most of the teens who uh, who got larks as a result of this policy were switching from birth control pills rather than switching from condoms because birth mm-hmm. control pills are more effective than condoms. But it does make sense that these are, like, young women who have taken who are who have decided that contra- contraception is, if not their responsibility, certainly something that they're going to take on right. and are just switching to the most effective means of that. But what you were just saying, Sarah, I now I really hope that one of the many, many public health researchers who listens to The Weeds takes this up because one of the big unanswered questions of this paper for me is why was pickup so much higher among teens than mm-hmm. women in their 20s before the mass media campaign? Because one of the things they talk about here is that when there was a threat from the Republican legislature to kill this program, yeah. it got a lot of national media coverage, including a citation of a Herman Lopez article from Vox, which unfortunately is attributed not to Herman Lopez, but to an N. Popovich. Um, so we're now going to be calling Herman Netherlands Popovich. It's been decided. <laughs> but that kind of national wave of big media did appear to have, and, you know, 
obviously, like, it's not just Vox and other national publications. It's also a lot of local TV coverage, local news outlet coverage. But that did appear to have increased the distance where it was useful for, for mm-hmm. teenagers. And it appeared to increase the number of women in their 20s getting uh, getting larks. But, like, the big boost for women in their teens was when it just went into effect at all. It wasn't this big media push. And so I was, I was wondering why was it mm-hmm. pre-media push so much more effective in catching on among teenagers, and I think you might have hit on it, that it's not that it's not a mediated thing. It's a peer-to-peer thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, if you think of like teenagers, right, they're spending all day with other teenagers. Like they are in school. One other channel, which they don't get into, but I could see being pretty plausible is, you know, if there's some kind of connection to local high schools, you know, where it's either worked into the sex ed curriculum or like, you know, there's a nurse who knows about it. Teenagers might be a little easier reached for this, because they're constantly like spending all this time in like institutions where there are like certain go- like government is involved. Um, and like I said, like they're spending all day like sitting next to other teenagers. Gosh, which... I'm just I'm flashing back to my ninth grade health class where our we spent one day on contraception and the only thing we learned about IUDs was that they would tear your uterus apart. Yeah. Um, well, I, I, mean, we... I went to Catholic school and so we did not learn about contraception, but I did learn many, 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 many ways sex will kill you. Right. Right. Yeah. There's... It will kill you dead. I definitely want to know about these cool school nurses of Colorado. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think that's also one thing you're seeing is this like um, resurgence of the IUD. Which got a very bad rap, you know, rightly so. You know, when you had the Daikon Shield, which was a early IUD that was not good and had a lot of side effects, and you know, a lot of women had really negative stories. That it's taken a while for you know these new versions of IUD, which are quite effective and have many fewer side effects, to really catch on. And and then I think it's really interesting that you're seeing the implant catch on as kind of the new wave of contraceptive that more and more younger women are are using from, I've not had an implant from what I understand. It is less painful to get it inserted, you know, especially if you're a woman who hasn't had a baby yet. And I I will say you see a lot more states um, doing things like what Colorado is doing. Um, If you're interested in learning more about this, we did an episode of the first season of my other podcast, The Impact, where we looked at Delaware, which is trying to do a very similar program. They saw the great success Colorado was having. They decided to implement something similar. Um, you can hear me try and insert an IUD into a robot version of a woman, this poor robot named Joan, who um, would have ended up with <laughs> some serious injuries. But luckily, I do not I'm insert... Sure that Joan has encountered worse in her, yes, her well, long career as a robot pelvis. Yes. Luckily, I, I do not insert IUDs for a living. I just do podcasts about them. Given that some of some of our podcast listeners are not women of reproductive age, it's important to be clear that like this isn't just us speculating about what the teens talk about. Yeah, we yes. are kind of speculating insofar as we're not teens, but it is real that women will ask each other, hey, mm-hmm. I have heard that this medical procedure might be painful. Yes. I have heard that there might be side effects. Can you talk about your experience with this? Like, there was for a while a joke, it, like, I think around, like, 2015, like, so many women at Vox were either getting IUDs or having babies. <laughs> like, there there really is a, when you have a critical mass of women who can mm-hmm. talk to about these things to each other, it serves some of this, the purpose that like having an institutional centralized thing or having a mass media campaign would serve. And, you know, it's important to recognize that when we talk about things that are essentially trends in contraception, that people, this only happens because people are willing to talk to each other because women trust each other at this point more than a lot of women trust the medical establishment. 
Right. And I also think that having those conversations is extremely useful, as, especially within age groups, mm-hmm. because there has been some really interesting in, uh, research on LGBT youth and specifically queer and bisexual youth who are experiencing higher rates than a lot, I think a lot of older people would expect of uh, unintended pregnancies. You know, LGBT people can get pregnant, too. It's been known to happen. It, it's stunning, if true. And it is. But I think that being able to have those conversations within an age group of people who are understanding that because you are queer does not mean that you are incapable of bearing child. And so I think that right. I and think like, that's on an the important flip side, element. Because you are queer does not mean that like the hormonal effects of some birth control mm-hmm. might not be a good or particularly bad idea for you, right? right? Like that there are other reasons to be thinking about your reproductive health in general. It's true. It's Mm -hmm. true. And I remember being a a young queer person and believing that, ha ha, this is a whole thing that I don't I never need to know about. I can just wander blithely through the fields. It turns out it's untrue. It's untrue (laughs) that I, I am also, you know, that the reproductive health of queer people is also a thing that matters and is important. That's I think it's such an important point you bring up, Derek, because, you know, I'm a healthcare reporter who's written a lot about reproductive technology. And I remember, you know, I tried to get an IUD maybe like seven or eight years ago. And my doctor said, oh, no, that's not a good type of birth control for you because you haven't had a baby. And it'd be very painful to get it. And I only got one because one of my best friends got one. And she said, yeah, it kind of hurt. But like, it's great. I don't have to take pills every day. I was turned off from it on the first round, even as someone who knows a lot about this stuff. Kind of the doctor told me not to. And I said, "Okay, like that person's a doctor. And it took me about four or five years to actually, you know, decide to change my method of contraception. Um, I think those effects are really big and powerful. And I don't know, to the public health researchers of the world, if you're listening to this, this is our study idea for you. Yeah. Yeah. Let's. Yeah. I mean, and this also, of course, gets to the particular ways that, like, women of color have reason to distrust the medical Mm -hmm. establishment, right? Like, everything from Serena Williams, of all people, nearly having very, very, very serious health outcomes and having her life potentially in danger when she delivered her baby to, you know, the effects on women of some of the studies about doctors not perceiving black people as feeling pain as strongly as other people. Like, the same extent to which we're talking about women as a marginalized group not necessarily feeling like the medical establishment gets them or trusts them or is putting their needs first, that, like, maybe a couple of outlier studies or the fact that IUDs have traditionally had a bad rap Mm -hmm. is the only thing that the doctor is thinking about, not what is going to be the most convenient thing for Mm -hmm. my patient. Um, But that is when we're talking about like low income women who are disproportionately likely to be women Mm -hmm. of color, that's like another factor that I think we have to talk about here is like these are clinics that are supposed to be catering to people who have every reason not to want to step into a clinic. And Mm -hmm. how you reduce those barriers, whether it's distance, whether it's by utilizing peer-to-peer networks, and how those clinics can remain afloat in the face of, you know, threats to federal funding if they, you know, for Title Title 10 clinics that provide abortions, like, these are very live questions going forward. And if you have thoughts on these questions, you can discuss them in our Facebook group. Um, I'm always looking for more exciting conversations about birth control research. Um, Thank you to Dara and Jane for hosting today. Thank you to our engineer, Jeff Geld. And a small, small request for you, our listeners. We are running a survey right now to figure out what sort of ads you guys want to hear. We sometimes get messages from people about how can they support the podcast. And here, this is an answer. Just take this survey. It'll only take five minutes. Voxmedia.com slash pod survey. That's voxmedia.com slash P-O-D 
S-U-R-V-E-Y. Thank you so, so much in advance. And we will be back in your feeds on Friday. In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than 1 billion trees are planted every year, and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com.